Uh, show of hands, how many of you on a, have on a mobile device uh, a playlist of any sort? Playlist. Show of hands. I think that's a majority of you, so you're familiar with what this is. Maybe if you don't have one, you know what one is. Uh, my family, as I said, we're, we're going on a little bit of a journey this afternoon to Queens, but we were on a longer journey actually this past week uh, coming back from uh, the, the western part of Virginia, and uh, it was about a six-hour drive, and we put together a playlist. We all picked a song, and we just went around until we had about three hours, and, and, and the playlist was just a helpful way of uh, sustaining us and carrying us on on that long and uh, wearying drive, especially wearying when you get towards that Capitol Beltway. I, I don't need to probably explain that to you. Uh, I, I wish that the playlist had done its full work in my heart as we were there, but it, I can't say that, but it did help. And I trust you're familiar with that concept, whether it's on a, a long drive, maybe as you're preparing, or maybe some of you have playlists for a workout. And so when you're exercising and you've got a particularly uh, laborious uh, workout regimen that you're doing, you, you've got earbuds, you've got, uh, they call it earbuds, airpods, you've got those things in the ears and they're playing the music and it's giving you a, it's giving you some adrenaline, it's keeping you fired up and going along uh, the way. Um, of course, you could do the car ride, you could do the workout without songs to keep you going, you could do that, but I, I think many of us have found that there is a, a strengthening help to be had in a set of songs to help us pass the time and push through to the end. And uh, as we come to God's word this morning, we're, we're returning to a, a sort of heavenly playlist. As we have been studying off and on for a few years, uh, what are known as the, the songs of ascent. Now I confess that when, as Sam got up to read, I was marking something in my binder when he first got up, and uh, Sam, I don't even see Sam because of the, there. Did you say, when you read it, did you start by saying a song of a sense? You did say that. Okay, pray. Uh, thank you. I mean, it's one that's easy to pass over. We might have missed that phrase, a song of a sense. But that label, which is true to the scripture, that's just not, that's not an editor for the English Standard Version putting that in after hundreds of years. That was there in the original psalm, a psalm a song of ascents, and it's there for the 15 psalms, beginning in Psalm 120 and ending in Psalm 134. And we have been, again, off and on for several years, been looking at some of these psalms. And uh, today and over the next two Sundays, uh, we intend to finish out so that we at least have a sermon preached on each of those psalms of ascent. Uh, for those, it's been a while since we were in one of these, so as a reminder, uh, though it's not a certainty, there's a general agreement upon commentators uh, or among commentators that this term, Song of Ascents, uh, refers to the, the pilgrims who were on their way from various parts of Israel 
ascending up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat upon a mountain, so wherever you were coming from, you were going up to Jerusalem. And uh, these songs were understood to be songs that the pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem for one of the three great festivals that marked the life of Israel, they would be singing these songs as they journeyed up to Jerusalem. Uh, It could be a long and strenuous journey. It could be one filled with uh, many different dangers or troubles. And so these psalms were intended to provide hope Uh, and encouragement and stability as the pilgrims made this long journey to Jerusalem. Uh, We could think of Psalms 120 to 134 as the pilgrims' playlist. Back in my day, it was called a mixtape, but nobody talks like that anymore. And we, brothers and sisters, we need such a playlist ourselves, not for a pilgrimage that we may be taking to the earthly city of Jerusalem, though many people do find enjoyment in traveling to the Holy Land and seeing the different sites there, but we are on a journey to our true and eternal heavenly home, to the city of Zion, the new Jerusalem. Uh, in, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus envisions coming to Jesus and trusting in him and following him as if it's like walking through a gate. Remember, he says, the gate is narrow. Coming to Jesus is like entering through a narrow gate. There's only one way through that gate of salvation, and it's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we go through that gate, he says, we, we enter along a pathway. He said, the way is hard. It's afflicted. It's troubled, and it leads to life. So we're on a journey to life, having been delivered from the death and judgment of God that we were due because of our sins, we have been promised a happy entry into what Jesus just simply calls life in Matthew 7, 14. Life is found in the glorious presence of God, and that's where we will be. We will dwell with the King of glory himself, free from every sin free from every burden, eternally restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. That is our blessed hope. That's what keeps us going. Christ will everlastingly deliver us. He has delivered us from the guilt and punishment of our sins, but he will deliver us and he will deliver us by bringing us to himself where there will be no more tears, no mourning, no sickness, no death, We will see the the face of our precious Lord and Redeemer, and we will reign with him forever. We sang of it earlier, all trouble done, all conflict past, our enemy overcome at last, when Christ shall reign from shore to shore and peace abide forevermore. That's life. That's where we're headed, but we know that we're not there right now. And so God's word speaks of us in many different places as pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, longing for our heavenly homeland where our true citizenship lies. That song we just sang is not just a Christmas song. It's a a song of longing. It's a song leaning into our exile. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly, lonely exile here. 
Oh, we've experienced in Jesus the first fruits of that deliverance, but we're still waiting for the fullness of it. And the Psalms of Ascent help us to lean into that reality of longing and exile, that angst that we experience in being so far from our true homeland. Have, have you experienced that taste of homesickness? Faraway trip, I always talk about when I was in India, that first night in India, Dan can sympathize. As others of you, Stan, Jason was there. That first night in India, I did not think I was going to survive, literally. But I did, praise God. But I experienced that homesickness, that longing. God's pilgrim people, we know that experience. And we have a testimony of that experience preserved for us here in Psalm 120. I think what we learn, if I could summarize the teaching of this psalm and what it communicates to us in the psalmist's experience or from the psalmist's experience, I would put it this way. God's people, we could say Yahweh's people, he, is, he was the, that L-O-R-D in capital letters that you see there in Psalm 120 is referring to the name Yahweh. I am who I am, the God of the Exodus, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Yahweh's people, the Lord's people, God's people, will suffer deep distress on our pilgrimage to glory. But in that distress, we wait prayerfully for his sure deliverance. I think that's the teaching of Psalm 120. God's people will suffer deep distress on our pilgrimage to glory, but in that distress, we wait prayerfully for his sure deliverance. If that was too long for you to jot down, you could just put it this way. Point, there's two points to this sermon. Point number one, our deep distress. Point number two, our sure deliverance. Uh, and I do pray that the encouragement that we get from God's word this morning would uh, strengthen us, would give us renewed zeal as we press on toward that blessed shore of our heavenly home. We see in this psalm something of the, the deep distress that the people of God suffer. It's, it's clearly the distress of a pilgrim. Uh, we're given a little bit of context in, in verse 5. You see that the psalmist is communicating he's far from home. Uh, look again at verse 5. Woe to me, the psalmist cries out, that I sojourn. He's a sojourner. He's a pilgrim. In Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, we, we, we can't be sure if the psalmist is speaking literally that he is far from home, or if he simply feels spiritually estranged and far from home. But, but he describes the burden that it is. He's a sojourner, he's a tent dweller. And so we have that language of being a, a pilgrim, a, a refugee. He's passing through. He's not home. He's sojourning in Meshech, which is in the, the far north of Israel. Today would be uh, called Turkey. And he says he's in Kedar, which is the southern border near the Arabs. Now there's the common, I don't know anything about this geography, okay, but the commentators are unanimous about this, that there's no literal way that he could be in both of these places at the same time. 
so what, what he seems to be communicating is that uh, when he says, I'm sojourning in Meshech, I'm dwelling among the tents of Kedar, these are in opposite directions. So what he means is, I'm dwelling among strange people, and this does not feel like my home. Uh, in, his, in his book on the Psalms of Ascent, uh, Eugene Peterson, who is, I would say, not a theologian that I would recommend universally, but some of his works, Craig is chuckling, is... Thanks for that clarification. Uh, he, he's, yeah, I'll just put it out there like that. I wouldn't recommend all of his works, but he has a book on the Psalms of Ascent, which has the most wonderful title, uh, and it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That may be all you get out of the sermon, and that would be okay. Following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. Well, in his book, he, he paraphrases uh, this idea and brings it into our language. He says, I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages. This world is not my home, and I want out. It's an unrelenting burden that the psalmist is experiencing. He lets out this great woe. It's a brutal experience for him. He's in distress. That's what we're told in verse 1. He's, he's feeling uh, hemmed in and in a, in a closed, confined space. Like, if you think of a caged animal that has been trapped and has no escape, that's the way the psalmist is experiencing this distress. The word distress has to do with narrowness, being hedged in, being limited. And so what do you do when, when you feel like the world that you're living in is not your home? What do you do when you feel like the world that you're inhabiting has gone mad? You see, you had a question about whether this was a relevant psalm when, when it was read aloud. But that's the question that is being pressed upon us. And that's our world, isn't it? Read this week uh, of a Nigerian woman. This is current events. You don't hear about this in all the ruckus about classified documents. But this is current events. Nigerian woman, her name was Rhoda Yoao Jatan. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. She was charged with blasphemy over a WhatsApp message. She was arrested and jailed after extremists in her community tried to kill her. She was arrested and jailed when extremists tried to kill her for a WhatsApp message. Uh, I read of an Egyptian father and son attacked by a radical Muslim on their way home from a prayer meeting. Uh, the Muslim claimed mental illness to avoid prosecution. Case closed. The father and son heal from their beating. And we, we cry out, Woe is me! I'm, I'm living in Meshech! Maybe a little closer to home. I, I, this is from Friday, uh, from the, Washing, the, the, the Department of Health in the state of Washington. Transmasculine persons with a cervix should talk to their doctor about cervical cancer screening. Find uh, an LGBTQ affirming provider at an, a website was provided. What do you do when you feel like the world you're inhabiting has gone mad? It's normal in our society 
to talk about transmasculine persons with a cervix. Now, I'll be clear, because I don't hit on this topic every Sunday, that we should understand every person who identifies as a transmasculine person with a cervix, we should understand them to be image bearers of God, who carry great dignity and should carry our respect and love, which does not mean unconditionally affirming however they feel, but pointing them to their true reason for dignity, which is their being made in God's image and their being reconciled to Him. But it's like our world has gone mad. You could think of other stories, couldn't you? And they're not just stories out there on Twitter. They're friends, they're family members, they're co-workers. And you, you look at the moral terrain around you and you just say, have we, have we lost our minds? And it gets worse when we who are, are longing for and advocating for some sanity are vilified and slandered and lied about And we see that's the pressing distress that the psalmist here laments. Look at verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. We don't know all the details, but it appears that there's some kind of a smear campaign, some kind of character assassination. He was being misrepresented. Rumors were circulating, and it it seemed as though he could not do anything about it. Those whom he was among, they they hated peace. He was for peace, but he was being demonized as an enemy of peace. And and we we know that, right? When, When someone questions the legitimacy and the reality and the sanity of the medical establishment, speaking of transmasculine persons with a cervix, what what gets said about me is I'm a transphobic. I'm afraid. I don't, don't think I'm afraid of anything. I, mean, I am afraid of things, but I'm not afraid of transphobic people. I'm, I'm seeking to point trans-identifying trans, people to their good creator who made them male or female for good purposes. But see, we're lied about. When we take a stand for truth, And we should be gentle and respectful, but no matter how gentle we are, no matter how respectful we are, we're slandered. We're called bigots. We're haters. And again, this isn't just out there in the culture. This is the experience of some of us in this room right now experiencing this kind of estrangement, this kind of alienation and isolation from loved ones because we stand for the God of peace and all his good words. And it's hard, it's hard. To be lied about is one of the most painful forms of of injustice. People speaking evil about you, insulting you, saying you're an evildoer, reviling you without cause. It's brutal. And the psalmist knows that experience. And and the good God who inspired the psalmist to put this uh, down in writing and preserved it for us in his holy word knows That we would experience this reality. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. 
so what, what do you do? How do you respond to that sort of distress when you just feel like, where, where am I? Well, we respond in many different ways. Some of us, we get angry. Uh, some of us think we've got to get even or we collapse into panic and we just fear about the reality of what our children will live with or what our grandchildren will be dealing with. Or maybe we shrink back and we just plan to compromise. Maybe we, maybe we could soften, soften some of the rough edges of this call to follow Jesus. Well, I think, the, I mean, what we do really is the second point of the sermon. But what, before we even get to the second point of the sermon, what we need to do is we need to accept the fact that this is God's word. That to be a man or woman of peace... You see, that's what the psalmist says of himself there in verse 7. I am for peace. To be one devoted to real peace. Peace, God wrought peace, heavenly peace. Peace in the God-man, the mediator, the Lord Jesus. That is going to bring us into conflict with the dwellers of Meshech and Kedar. We should not try to uh, spare ourselves from it. We don't need to run after it, but if we're faithful to the Lord and his word, it will, it will meet us. Jesus said that it would be so. John 15, verse 19, as Jesus prepared to suffer and die and ascend, in those final words he was leaving with his disciples before he departed from them, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's just right there. I mean, it's all over the Bible, right? And and it's my sense that Christians today, and I'm not just, I'm I'm always, I'm starting by looking in the mirror here. So I'm not just saying this at you. But it's my sense that Christians today, particularly in America, are spending an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to avoid the world's disapproval. Uh, Young uh, teenagers, I was praying for you earlier in the service. This would be something you just want to get established in your minds and hearts right now. If you're going to follow Jesus, not everyone is going to like you. I'm not saying that's easy. But I am saying that he, he is worth that. And that will be the reality if you want to follow him. Everybody's not going to like you. And this psalm is one pointer to the fact that seeking to, to just be faithful to the Lord and win the world's approval is a fruitless exercise. Jesus said that the hatred of this world towards us is inevitable. We cannot make a message of self-denial and self-renunciation. That's what Jesus came. We, we love and praise God, we should love. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Praise God, that's our Jesus. The same Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And to think that we could take that message and make it palatable to people who are ruled by love of self would be a denial of our whole identity as pilgrims. On our pilgrimage to glory, the Lord's people will suffer deep 
distress. It is not easy when we experience it culturally or vocationally or relationally in our families, but God has not hidden these things from his people, and he's done that for our perseverance. If you are a faithful follower of Christ, you will suffer reproach because of him. I don't know when that's going to be for you. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. But I know if that never happens for you, I'm not talking about like this week necessarily. But if you just live your life as a follower of Jesus for years and you never experience any kind of slander, mocking, reviling, insulting, just maybe question whether you're being faithful to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. We're called in the very invitation to come to Jesus for salvation. We're called to a life of being reviled and ridiculed and slandered and lied about. Jesus actually said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it seems as though that's what the psalmist is experiencing here in Psalm 120. A a homesickness, a longing an alienation from the truth and goodness and peace that is found in his covenant Lord because of the people he was surrounded by. And so how do we find relief in Meshech and Kedar? Well, we find it by turning to the Lord in prayer. Maybe that sounds cliche, but that's what the passage is teaching us. The Lord's people will suffer deep distress on our pilgrimage to glory, so wait prayerfully for his sure deliverance. That's what the psalmist does in this deep, painful angst of dwelling in Meshech and Kedar. Verse 1, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And I'll I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little rebuked by that. Because that's not my first reaction, often. I've got my news outlets. You know, my my Al Mohler briefing podcast or Breakpoint podcast that just lets me know what's going on in the culture. And in my distress, I complain. I have a conversation with myself where I'm refuting some opponent out there and winning the argument because of my clever positions that are articulated in my mind for no one to hear. In my distress, I get angry. In my distress, I I despair. I grow numb and apathetic, and I just stop listening to the news sources for a few weeks. But sadly, I don't often enough pray. I don't bring it to the Lord. But that's what the psalmist is doing here. He says, in my distress, I'm bringing it to the Lord. Yahweh. I am who I am. The God who knows and who sees and sustains all things. The one who appoints and orchestrates and governs all things. The God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The God who is in the heavens doing all that he pleases. Him who is, as it says in 1 Timothy 6, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, the one who has honor and eternal dominion. He says, come to me, and I don't do it. Well, the psalmist does it. 
he brings his distress to the Lord, and it says there, he answered. But I want you to notice this about the answer. I think this is very important to see in Psalm 120. His answer in this situation, the Lord's answer, that is, his answer was not to change the psalmist's circumstances, but to change his perspective. See, the, the deliverance that we see in Psalm 120 is not the transformation from distress to ease and circumstantial bliss. Right? Did you see any, what we would anticipate as resolution in this psalm? It starts with, I cried to the Lord. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. But when the psalm ends, he's just dwelling among these malicious, hateful people who are for war, even though he's for peace. It does not seem as if his circumstances have changed. And yet he could speak to the Lord's answer. It seems as though the answer was not the, the, the release from circumstantial distress to ease, but the experience of confidence in the midst of distress because of a mighty deliverance that was still yet to come. It would be great. It would be wonderful if after verse 1, when it said, he answered me, and it just said in verse 2, and all of my enemies were routed. Or, better yet, and all my enemies were converted and came to know my God and we worshiped him together. But it doesn't say that. What it does say is that prayer leads the psalmist to the anticipation and the expectation of coming justice on his attackers. That's what it says in verse 3. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? O warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. You say, what in the world does that mean? That's what I said. Thankfully, there are people who can help with these things. Um, when the psalmist is talking specifically about this broom tree, uh, again, read this from the commentators who know something about the history, the culture, and the setting. The, this, the idea with the broom tree is that the broom tree was known for its very long branches, which would burn longer than the average branch and therefore would produce a fire that was more intense and hot. And those coals, it seems as though the psalmist is anticipating those coals as being rained down in judgment upon those hateful beasts that had filled Meshech and Kedar with their lying. Uh, the wages of their sin would be the everlasting experience of glowing coals raining down upon their heads forever and ever, day and night with no rest. That's just not for the people in Meshech and Kedar, but that's God's word to all those who live in refusal and rejection of God's word of truth in Christ. We, Joy read that to us from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 of that day when our blessed Lord will be revealed. That trumpet sounding, that day that we sang of with joyful anticipation when he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the, the psalmist sees here, justice is coming. 
There's a day coming. What's going to be given to you? The implication seems to be, what's God going to give? Sharp arrows, coals burning red hot from that broom tree branch, raining down. He's anticipating that day when God will set all things right, when he will renew all things. And I, and I thought to myself as I got to this point, I thought some of you would be thinking, is, that, is it that hateful and malicious to like, think that way? To pray that way? Well, as I, as I said just a moment ago, the deep longing is that our adversaries, that the enemies of truth, that they would be reconciled to God, right? We're for peace. We hold out the good news of peace. We long for them to be reconciled to God. And we pray to that end. But we also remember that it was an apostolic admonition to never avenge yourselves, Romans 12, 19. The psalmist is not avenging himself. He's taking this thing to the Lord. It says in Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And the psalmist, through prayer, he's saying, Bring it, Lord. Bring it. He's obtained that divine perspective. He's not seen a change in his personal circumstances, but he has experienced the deliverance of a transformed perspective. I think that's one of the big things we learn from Psalm 120 about our earthly pilgrimage. The Christian's life does not always go well, but it always ends well. Kids, I don't have any fun illustration for you today. I love that you're here, but I'm just going to say that sentence again. And you can ask your parents what exactly Pastor Larry meant when he said that and what that means and why I believe that. Kids, if you're going to follow Jesus, I want you to know this. Ask your parents to explain it more. The Christian's life doesn't always go well, but it always ends well. Because there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. And that's what keeps the pilgrim journeying on in the midst of Meshech and Kedar. And we can keep going. We can bank on that. We can hope in that because of Jesus. And because of Jesus alone. How could it be otherwise, given that we have our own lies that need to be dealt with, don't we? It is easy to be agitated about all the lies being propagated and believed out there. But what about all the lies propagated and believed by us? I mean, this is, this is the Apostle Paul's declaration of the human predicament is, and it's all of us, Romans 1, 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You've been good on that? No lies, no listening to lies, no believing lies, no advancing lies. Oh, if we were honest with ourselves, every one of us in this room would sing 
a song that we did not sing this morning but came to my mind as I was writing, a a song based on another of these Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 130. Were you to count my sinful ways, how could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone. That can be our song because Jesus made Psalm 120 his song. You wonder, did I, you know, again, I mentioned the context of these Psalms of Ascent on the, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem at the three feasts. One of those feasts was the Passover feast. Did Jesus sing Psalm 120 on his journey into Jerusalem that culminated on that day we now call Palm Sunday? We can't be sure of that. But we can be sure that the painful angst depicted in Psalm 120 was most assuredly Jesus' experience as he endured the shameful agony that would be the grounds of our salvation from sin, from lying. Don't you see his suffering foreshadowed in the psalmist's misery? Though Jesus had no sin of his own and was perfectly blameless and upright in all his ways, he knew what it was for his reputation to be destroyed, did he not? He knew what it was to experience lying and deceitful lips impugning his character and twisting his words. He knew what it was to be calling out to his Lord and Father in the midst of distress while his enemies shouted with venomous glee. Look at him hanging there. Rescue yourselves. Get yourself down from that cross if you're the son of God. He knew that experience hanging on a cross of feeling like a caged animal being victimized by the unjust malice of others, a smear campaign to publicly malign him. He could say more than any human ever has lived. He could truly say, I am for peace. That's what he came for, to make peace with sinners. And yet they were for war. They killed him. But when he cried out to the Lord in his distress, the Lord answered him in resurrection glory. Oh, Peter writes about what was true of of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you're you're here visiting with us today and you are not a follower of Jesus and you just wonder where, like in the, I'm just talking about this Psalm, it's like, when, when you read any piece of literature, you, you tend to look for yourself somewhere like, and identify with someone in, in the psalm. And if you were to look at Psalm 120 and you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you say, where am I? I just want you to understand that where you are is you're, you're in verses 3 and 4 there. You're, you're among these deceitful tongues where there's sharp arrows pointing at you and glowing coals from the broom tree that are ready to come down upon you. Because you have fundamentally uh, believed the lie. You have denied the truth of God and you have believed a lie. And that lie is that you're the center of your own life. And that's a vicious lie of the enemy. 
And I believe the Lord's brought you here today so that you would hear the truth that in Jesus Christ there is salvation and there is forgiveness of living in that lie as if your life belongs to you. And through repenting of your sin, turning away from yourself, looking to Jesus and receiving Jesus as the Savior who was wounded on the cross, who suffered and endured all the scorn and the wrath of God that was due to you for your sin, that by believing in him, you might be cleansed of your sin, forgiven forever, brought into his family, made a beloved sheep, and you could have confidence today that he's carrying you on to that promised land. You could join with us in our journey towards the promised land. We invite you to come today. Uh, saints, brothers and sisters, if he has saved us from that deep distress of his own fiery eternal wrath through the life and death and resurrection of his dear son Jesus, then we too can enjoy that deliverance of a transformed perspective in our ongoing experiences of affliction and mistreatment and injustice. We can say with the Apostle Paul, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And so, beloved, there is a song that we can sing even as we sojourn in Meshech and dwell among the tents of Kedar. As we're accused of being on the wrong side of history, we need not pout about this. We need not shake our fists and, and point our fingers and, and fret and get angry and defensive and judgmental or fearfully apologize for the truth and retreat. No, as, as surely as Christ is risen, our vindication will come. Being on Jesus' side is the way to be on the right side of history. So in the deep distress that we meet on our pilgrimage to glory, let's wait prayerfully for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even so, it is well with my soul. And I pray it's well with yours. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the deliverance that you have achieved for us through Jesus. We thank you that we have come to know by faith forgiveness from sin and adoption into your family as beloved sons and daughters. And yet while we trust in you, it is hard here in Meshech and Kedar. We pray that even today that you've done a little transforming work of our perspective and that you would help us to carry on with faith, with steadfastness, with perseverance, with hope, with joy, and with loving and gentle witness as we wait for all the joy of the deliverance that is yet to come. May we be ambassadors of your reconciliation. Father, we're sobered at the reality of eternal judgment to those who refuse our Lord Jesus. May we not become embittered with them. May we love them in word and in deed and in truth and in holiness. And would you use us to, to rescue many more from the darkness of damnation and bring them on that journey towards life with us. We ask for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.